last, the young girl came to the well of the world's end. Once on top, they were to don parachutes and jump off the mountain. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers to warm your heart and lift your spirit and give flight to your imagination. And you are going to hear a little of all of that today. You know, if you look out at the horizon, you'll see a line that looks like you could step right off the edge of the earth. And maybe that's why myths and legends have long explored the notion of an earth on which if you travel far enough, you might find an edge, an ending. And what might be at that ending place, a cliff that falls into nothing, a shining castle, a gateway to another world, or perhaps something as simple as a wishing well and a little frog. Well, in the story you're going to hear today, a girl travels to the world's end and finds a magical well and something else besides. It's coming up in a story called The Well at the World's End, told by Richard Martin. You'll also hear a tall tale about an Olympic competition from Sheila Starks Phillips, a vegetable story from Bob Reiser, a song by Gary Voorhees, and another from the Grammy-winning storyteller and musician David Holt. But let's get to that Sheila Starks Phillips tale first. It's called Olympic Competition in Amarillo. It's from a collection of stories called The Lies of Texas Are Upon You. Here's tall tale teller Sheila Starks Phillips with a great story here on The Appleseed. Remember the Olympic Summer Games in Atlanta? Oh, I was so fired up about those games. You see, I've always been a big fan of the Olympics because of growing up in Amarillo. Amarillo has long been one of the movers and shakers of the Olympic community. In fact, Amarillo has produced a number of very notable Olympic athletes. You probably all remember and know the name Mikhail Jordanovsky. Mikhail was a foreign exchange student from Chicago who attended Amarillo High School. He went on to play for the United States Olympic basketball team and made quite a name for himself. And who could forget Barry Sue Betton, the only six-foot-tall female gymnast ever. Now, Barry Sue went to high school with me and won a silver medal on the balance beam at the 1952 Games. We were so proud of her. Oh, there were those cynics who said the only reason she won was because she wore a size 12 slipper. But really now, a girl has to wear a shoe to fit her foot, doesn't she? It was in Amarillo the summer before the Atlanta Olympics that they tried out a new event for possible inclusion in the Olympic Games. It was tentatively named the Endura Rod, and it was patterned after the Ironman competition, that multi-event affair that's held annually in Hawaii. In fact, that was the reason Amarillo was picked to have this trial event, because of the similarities in terrain and weather between Amarillo and Hawaii. The first part of the event required the skill of mountain climbing. The athletes would leave the starting gate and sprint a hundred yards to the base of Mount Amarillo, 
part of the lower Rockies and certainly the tallest peak in Texas. At that point, they would scale the mountain. Once on top, they were to don parachutes and jump off the mountain. Now, here was the tricky part. A circle 10 foot in diameter was whitewashed at the bottom of the mountain, and the athlete's goal was to manipulate the parachute in such a way as to land as far away from the center of that circle as possible. It was predicted that a gifted athlete could land, oh, as far away as 32 miles. Once on the ground, they were to shed their parachutes, run down the beach, enter the water, and swim out and around an oil rig that was just about five miles out in the Gulf of Amarillo. This was the trickiest part of the race because the wind in Amarillo always whipped the waves up until swimming was very difficult. Once back to the beach, the athletes would jump on bicycles for the final segment of the competition and pedal 6.8 miles, entering Amarillo Stadium for the final lap and the final five miles. This was a typical Texas stadium. All was ready for the race. People from all over the tri-state area had come in to see it. Media from all over the world were there to cover the race. Teams had entered from Great Britain, France, Russia, Italy, Germany, Japan, and of course the United States, and for the first time since the 1904 Olympics, the country of Crisotho had entered a team. Crisotho is a small landlocked country surrounded by South Africa and inhabited entirely by pygmies. Crisotho also planned to field a basketball team in Atlanta, and we could hardly wait to see them play. They make up for their short stature with their quickness and their unusual jumping ability. The average male Crisothian can jump four times his actual height from a standing position. The day of the event promised to be a beautiful West Texas day, sun shining brightly, wind only blowing about 40 knots. The athletes were in their starting positions, and the gun went off. They ran pretty much neck and neck all the way to the base of Mount Amarillo and then began their climb. At that point, the Chrysothians took over. They appeared to almost fly through the air as they climbed and jumped their way to the top. Once on top, parachutes were put on, and the contestants jumped off the mountain and began to manipulate their chutes. The heavier athletes were at a distinct disadvantage to the pygmies from Crisotho, who seemed to sail through the air. And when they came down, they were exactly 34.3 miles from the center of the 10-foot circle, a record followed close behind by the Italians, a wiry bunch themselves. They shed their parachutes and ran down the beach and into the water of the Gulf of Amarillo. Well, then things went bad for the Chrysothians. The swimming proved to be very, very difficult. The wind had picked up and the waves were oh, 10, 15 feet high. Although they made a valiant effort, they simply could not get the speed the others did. Legs and arms were way too short. Nevertheless, all of the competitors made it around the oil rig and back to the beach and jumped on their bicycles for the final segment of the race. This was when the men separated from the boys.
Exhaustion was beginning to show on all the participants. By the time they entered Amarillo Stadium, the only ones in contention were the three Americans, one fella from Great Britain, two Australians, and the three pygmies from Crisotho, who were still behind but closing fast due to the strong headwinds buffeting the height-challenged contestants from the other countries. A huge cheer went up from the crowd who were on their feet when the contestants entered the stadium. All of the athletes were peddling for all they were worth. And then, then the strangest thing happened. As they rounded the last turn and were going into the home stretch, suddenly, one by one, the leaders developed tire trouble. Their tires went flat. Some had a flat front tire, some had a flat back tire, but in any event, they were disabled and out of the race, leaving a clear and open path for the three pygmies from Crisotho, who finished the race first, second, and third, gold, silver, and bronze. The crowd went crazy. However, one of the Olympic officials had noticed that at precisely the moment that those bicycle tires went flat, a group of kids who were standing on the front row of the bleachers abruptly left the stadium. Witnesses later reported observing these uh, kids stuffing something down the front of their pants, and it wasn't their shirt tails. Quite a controversy occurred after it was discovered that the bicycle tires had been punctured by rubber-seeking darts, and the kids who had left the stadium so abruptly were not kids at all, but members of the Olympic blowgun team from, you guessed it, Crisotho. Nothing could be proved beyond a reasonable doubt even after having the entire blowgun team try on a glove that had been dropped at the scene, so no criminal charges were ever filed. However, the Olympic officials took a very hard-nosed stand and declared that Crisotho could never, ever again participate in any Olympic competition. So, unfortunately... We did not have the opportunity to see their basketball team in action in Atlanta. I really hated that. <laughs> Sheila Starks Phillips with Olympic competition in Amarillo. We're going to hear The Well at the World's End by Richard Martin coming up and a tale about a pumpkin from Bob Reiser. A little bit of music, too, in today's episode of The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. 
It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Apple Seed. If you're just joining us, we just heard Olympic competition in Amarillo, a Sheila Starks Phillips story from a collection of stories called The Lies of Texas Are Upon You. Stick around. Up uh, in just a little bit is Richard Martin with The Well at the World's End. But first, because we know that uh, the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story that you might tell around the kitchen table or the living room, here's a memory about, well, it's about an, an evening leaving the Appleseed studio and heading out to my car. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I'm going to say right up front that it wasn't a bomb. I'm just going to give away the ending, just like that, mainly because I don't want you to worry about the main character in this story. He's one of the late-night security guys in the BYU Broadcasting Building, where we make the apple seed every day. And in this story, I've gone into the building late at night to upload some files to the radio technology that helps us bring you the show every day, and it goes just fine. No story there. And I'm pretty much alone in the building at that hour, and as I leave the building... Just outside the southwest entrance, there's a black bag, a gym bag, with a big white Nike swoosh on it, and it's full, bulging, in fact. And my first and main thought was that someone had left their bag there as they had stopped to talk to a friend or take a phone call, and then had left the bag there throughout the day and into the night. In fact, I'm still pretty sure that's what it was. And so I wasn't too worried about anything as I climbed into my car and headed toward the parking lot exit. But then I thought, dang, there's probably a security protocol for this very thing. I'm probably supposed to report to someone that there's a mysterious abandoned black bag outside the broadcasting building. Someone is probably supposed to do something about this. So... I stopped my car, and I jogged back into the building, through the lobby, downstairs to the security kiosk. And there, behind the computer, was a security guy. He greeted me with a friendly hello as I walked up to his desk, and I said hello back. He pushed his glasses up and pushed back his straight hair as I told him what I'd seen outside. Now, I'm sure it's nothing, absolutely nothing, I said, but I figured... There's probably a security protocol for this kind of thing, and I don't know what it is, so I thought I'd come tell you about it. Well, the security guy grinned at me, and then he got real serious. He said, there is a security protocol for this kind of thing, he said, and he raised a finger in the air. He said, you've come to the right place. I mean, I really hate to trouble you, I said. I mean, I know it's almost surely nothing. And he looked at me and said, it's not my job to assume the best. I'll take care of it. Well, I didn't know what I'll take care of it meant exactly, but I walked up the stairs and I headed out toward my waiting car, and as I left, I turned around to see the security guy whistling a tune as he put on his reflective outdoors-at-night security jacket. I saw him grab his enormous whack-bad-guys-over-the-head flashlight and his walkie-talkie. As the doors closed behind me, the last thing I heard was this guy's happy whistling. Well, as it turns out, the bag was gone. As I left the building, I could see the spot where it had been. Whoever had left it there had picked it up again. No black bag, no Nike swoosh, just an empty space. 
and certainly I was relieved that it didn't turn out to be anything nefarious. Really, what are the chances it might have been, right? But my heart sank just a little, actually, because the prospect of a little emergency security protocol had, well, it had obviously made the security guy's whole night. I could still hear his happy whistling in my head. He'd been sitting there for hours, just like every night, watching computer screens, every once in a while walking around the building. And the notion of a mysterious bag that was almost certainly nothing to worry about but had to be checked out anyway, well, that was just delicious. And even as I stood there, looking at the space where the bag had been, the security guy came out the door behind me, and I pointed to where the bag had been and told him it wasn't there anymore, and yeah, I'm sure he was as relieved as I was that there was no real danger, but darned if his countenance didn't fall a little bit. And he didn't, in fact, leave it at that. Last time I saw him as I drove out of the parking lot, he was heading over to the spot where the bag had been to sweep his flashlight back and forth and check things out on an otherwise routine night. While we're all glad to be safe and sound, and while none of us wants any of us or our loved ones to actually be in danger, we're all looking for a little adventure, right? I mean, something to shake up an otherwise routine day. So here's to unexpected adventures no matter how small. Here's to the little things that shake up our day. After all, though the Nike bag wasn't a bomb, I said that right up front, right? The promise of something sinister, something for which special protocols needed to be engaged, was enough to set my friend the security guy whistling a happy tune even as he went off into the night to check it out. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. And before we get to the Richard Martin story, The Well at the World's End, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the books that we read, the films that we see, the meals that we share, even the smells that are part of our past or the sounds, and uh, talking about some of those ways in which great stories come into our lives is something that we love to do with friends, and I'm thrilled to be joined in the studio by a longtime friend of the Appleseed, one of our favorite storytellers, Kim Whitecamp, is here. Kim, it's such a pleasure to have you with us right here in the Appleseed studio. Hi, Sam. You know, I have to tell you, I listen to the show and you tell all the tellers are your favorite teller (laughs) (laughs) the phrase is one of our favorite tellers that's the phrase (laughs) how are you great great (laughs) and i think you know just chatting before we heated up the mics here i think we have a similar relationship with creeks i love creeks you know let's talk about creeks well when we go camping, my husband and I, and that's a lot. I mean, we, we camp as soon as we can and put the camper away late win- midwinter. One of us looks up the campgrounds, and the goal is always to be near either a creek or a river. But yeah. I love it if it's a creek <laughs> because then I can get in it. 
I put on my chacos and I go right into the middle and I walk as far as I can till it's too deep. Yeah. And you know, those round rocks that have been worn down and they've got a little bit of moss, you have to be careful. And there's little minnows and uh, the little... Uh, the water skippers, sure, is yeah. what we call them, yep. go flying by, and there's the cool of the trees because you know, uh, even a creek as small as it as small as it is, draws in the 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 flora. Yeah, right. I love the sound, <laughs> and in the mornings when I wake up, I love this. It's one of my favorite parts of camping. My husband brings me my warm tea in bed, and he opens the door that's right beside the bed the bed that I sleep in yeah. so that I can hear the creak and the birds while I sip that before I even get out of bed. <laughs> nice, right? I didn't even yeah, train him. He, that just he, came I was going to say, he He's likes you. Yeah, that's... yeah. <laughs> and we love it. I mean, on our honeymoon, we went and we're beside a river. Oh, yeah. And he has yeah. pictures of me. I waded in as far as I could and had a big old <laughs> stick. And, and I have such grand memories of creeks because... Great-grandma Detter lived up on the hill, and down below her house was a creek. I grew up in an area, Mm -hmm. lots of large properties and farmland, but tons of relatives. And I would get on my bike early in the morning when I was allowed to after chores, and I would ride down there, and I would spend the whole day in that creek. My brother and I, my brother Chris, who's so dear to my heart, the first storyteller I ever met in my life was my brother Chris hmm. and would tell me stories of fairy tales and folk tales that he made up yeah. or he had heard. And we would get sticks and we would do battles and we would build forts, but always around the creek. And we were constantly wading through and water snakes would go by. Yeah. Now, here's the thing, Sam. My mom didn't want us in the creek. <laughs> and so if we got, we would roll our pants up. Yeah. And if the bottoms got a little wet, we'd roll them down and ride our bikes so they'd dry. <laughs> Kids, don't do this at home. You should only if your parent allows you. My mom was so scared we were going to fall and hurt herself. We lived. Yeah. The thing that's interesting is, and I know I'm doing a lot of talking here, but yeah, I'm excited about creeks. I went back, I guess, 10 years ago to the old neighborhood, which now is all houses, drove down that one road towards Great Grandma Detter's house, which now belongs to someone else, and got to the little bridge and sat there and thought, this is it. Hmm. It was a trickling rock bed. Yeah. And I'm thinking it was so huge to us. Yeah. I remember there was an area that came up to our knees where we'd stop because it seemed almost you know, scary, like what lies right. beneath. Yeah. And I remember just thinking to myself, how was this so huge? You know, yeah, and I think that's a good life lesson. Sometimes things seem really large and they're not as big once you get away from them. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I kind of got a kick out of it hmm. that it was such a playground for my brother and I, and it really was a very simple thing. Yeah, you know, I I think about my own creek memories as a kid and and memories of other things that our parents didn't want us doing right yeah. <laughs> i mean you know, <laughs> hiking in the foothills and yeah after certain hours or whatever yeah. and and i and i as you talk i'm struck with just how much of my childhood was spent doing stuff that my parents would worry about <laughs> <laughs> look back into those memories and it's a it's a large percentage and so right? much of it outside yeah i mean right. i would be gone all day long yeah yeah as you talk about creeks, I'm thinking of an of a camping experience. You know, my 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 uncle Paul, my uncle Paul, my mother's brother, city kid from California, 
wanted to take his nephews camping and took us camping near our home. We grew up in the mountains, you know. And uh, so it, 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 it was an environment that was... He, he was working to, to be the authority figure, right, in an environment that was foreign to him but familiar to us, right? And I'll always remember uh, late at night standing on the banks of a creek with my Uncle Paul, my brother and I, and listening to the water and watching it go by even in the dark and uh, being completely captivated by that and watching my uncle be captivated by that. And there was a moment in standing next to that creek where his eyes went from the creek to the sky. And he saw for what must have been the first time, certainly the first time in this trip, right, the stars uh Above a above a mountain home rather than above a city home, right? Right. And Big I difference. Will, yeah, and I will always, to my dying day, remember his gasp when he saw the stars. I think like I, he just arrived on Earth. Yeah, like he just arrived on Earth. Beautiful. I think about that all the time, and it's brought back to to my thoughts uh, as you're talking about your experiences uh, uh, with, with creeks. You know, uh, the things that we share with one another spark thoughts and memories for us that we can share with the people that we love, right? What a pleasure to have you with me, Kim. Thank you so so much. It was lovely. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with Kim Whitecamp. We'll be sure to bring her back again soon. I'm Sam Payne, and in a moment, you're going to hear the well at the world's end on the Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you here on this hour of the Appleseed. If you're just joining us a moment ago, we heard a conversation with Kim Whitecamp, the wonderful storyteller, longtime friend of the show. We talked about memories of the creek. And in just a moment, Richard Martin with The Well at the World's End. But first, how about we get our toes tapping with The Train That Carried My Girl from Town, performed for you by the Grammy Award-winning storyteller and musician David Holt and his gang of music makers. This is an oldie but a goodie. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Somebody bring her back She's got her hand in my money sack Hey, that train that carried my girl from town Hey, 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 hey Some dirty rounders stole my jelly roll. I 
ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Show me a woman that a man can trust. Hey, that train that carried my girl from town. Hey, 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 hey. Give me six or nine I got to talk to that girl of mine There goes the train Carried my girl from town If I know the number Lord, I'd flag her down Hey, that train That carried my girl from town Hey, 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 hey David Holt and the Lightning Bolts. That was the train that carried my girl from town. An old one, but a great one. And up next, we've got that story from Richard Martin, The Well at the World's End. Richard Martin was a primary school teacher before moving to Germany and becoming a storyteller full-time. Here he is on the Appleseed. My last tale... I'll tell you a tale you think you know. Once upon a time, the time it was when the grass grew greener and the trees grew taller and the sun shone more brightly than it does today, there lived a young girl, a young girl whose mother had died and her father had married again. Now the young girl's stepmother would look at that young girl and see that the young girl was far prettier than she, the stepmother, had ever been or could be now. And for that reason, the stepmother hated the young girl from the bottom of her heart. Each day, each day, Day she made that young girl's life harder and harder, but even that was not enough. And one day, the stepmother decided to do something to get rid of the young girl forever. So she went to the kitchen and she took the sieve. You know the sieve, the metal bowl with the holes for the water to run through? 
and she gave her stepdaughter that sieve and said, Stepdaughter, fetch me a sieve full of water from the well of the world's end. For she thought, she will never find the well of the world's end, and even if she does, how can she bring back a sieve full of water? But the young girl took the sieve and went out to look for the well of the world's end. But no one she met was able to tell her where to find it. No one, that is, until at length. She found an old woman, a woman so old she was bent almost down to the ground, and that old woman was able to tell the young girl not only where to find the well of the world's end, but everything that she must do to get there. And so it happened. At last, the young girl came to the well of the world's end. And she looked at the well, and she was happy because the well was so beautiful. The walls around the well were covered in rich green moss. The, the moss was studded with bright spring flowers. The water, the water was crystal clear. And the young girl was happy, and she took her sieve, and she dipped her sieve into the waters of the well, and lifted it up. But of course, the water ran through the holes in the sieve. The young girl tried again. Again she dipped, and again the water ran through, and no matter how often she tried, the water would not stay in the sieve. And at last, the young girl sat down and cried bitter tears, but as she cried, she heard a voice, a voice behind her, a voice which called, why are you crying, my pretty young girl? She looked around. There, behind her, was a frog. Again, the frog asked, why are you crying, my pretty young girl? And the young girl told the frog about her stepmother and the sieve full of water. Well, I can tell you how to take a sieve full of water away. You can? Yes. And you will? Yes. If. If you promise to do all that I ask of you and all night long, well, the young girl looked at the frog and thought, the frog is so small. What can a frog ask of me that is so difficult to do? So the young girl gave her promise. She gave her word. And the frog looked up and he sang. Stop it with moss and daub it with clay, then you can carry the water away. And when the young girl heard those words, she peeled some of the soft green moss from the walls of the well and stopped the holes. She knelt down to the wet ground and she lifted a handful of smooth wet clay and she daubed that inside the sieve and she dipped 
the sieve into the crystal waters of the well and lifted it out, and not a drop ran through. And she turned to take that sieve full of water back home, and the frog called out, Do not forget what you have promised. And hop, 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 and disappeared into the waters of the well. Well, the young girl returned with a sieve full of water. Her stepmother was surprised to see her, but did not say a word. She just took the water. But that evening, as the two sat there by the fire, there came a knock at the door, low down on the door. Now, who can that be? Go to the door and open it. And the young girl opened the door, and there was the frog. And the frog looked up, and he sang. Let me in, my hinny, my heart. Let me in, my darling. Remember the words that you and I spoke at the world's end well, but this morning. When the stepmother heard this, she asked what had happened, and the young girl had to tell her stepmother all that had happened. Now, when the stepmother heard that her stepdaughter now had to do all the frog asked, and all night long she said, yes, young girls must keep their word, let the frog in. And the young girl let the frog in. And the frog hopped over to where the girl was sitting and looked up at the girl and sang. Lift me up, my hinny, my heart. Lift to your knee, my darling. Remember the words that you and I spoke at the world's end well but this morning. And the young girl looked down at the frog, the green frog, the wet frog. And she did not want to put her clean, dry hands around that frog's wet body and lift that onto her white dress. But the stepmother saw that and said, come, young girls must keep their word. Lift the frog up. And the young girl bent down and put her small white fingers around that frog's body and lifted it onto her white dress. And the frog sat there. And the frog looked up and sang. Give me my supper, my hinny, my heart. Give me my supper, my darling. Remember the words that you and I spoke at the world's end well but this morning. The young girl looked at that frog and saw how wide and gaping the frog's mouth was, and she did not want to put her fingers anywhere near that frog's mouth. But the stepmother saw that and said, Come, young girls must keep their word. Give him his supper. And so the young girl took pieces of bread and dipped them in milk and put them way back into the frog's open mouth. When the frog had eaten his dinner,
the frog turned to her and he sang. Take me to bed, my hinny, my heart. Take me to bed, my darling. Remember the promise you promised to me at the world's end well, but this morning, when the young girl looked at that frog and saw what long, long legs the frog had got, she did not want to take that frog anywhere near her clean white bed, but the stepmother saw that and said, come, young girls must keep their promise, take him to bed. And the young girl lifted the frog up and carried him into her bedroom, and she opened the bed, and she put the frog into her white clean bed and she took off her own clothes and she got into bed and she tried to stay away as far as she could from that frog and all night long until just before dawn the frog turned to her and he sang chop off my head my hinny my heart chop off my head my darling Remember the promise you promised to me at the world's end well but this morning. And the young girl looked at the frog and she thought what would happen if she brought an axe down on the frog's neck. What blood, what pain. She did not want to do that but the frog sang and sang again so piteously. Chop off my head, my hinny, my heart. Chop off my head, my darling. Remember the promise you promised to me at the world's end well, but this morning, at last the girl could withstand it no longer. She reached for an axe and she swung that axe through the air, but she could not bear to see and she closed her eyes as she brought it down. But when she opened her eyes, Instead of the torn, bleeding, mangled flesh of the frog's body, she saw, as you know, she had to see, the prince standing there, so handsome, who told her she had released him from the spell, the spell which could only be broken when a young girl did all that he asked of her and all night long which now she had done, so now she must live with him in his castle, which then she did, leaving her stepmother so bitter that all this had happened simply because she had sent her stepdaughter to fetch a sieve full of water from the well of the world's end. Well, at the world's end, a story told for you by Richard Martin here on The Appleseed. That's not the only fantastical tale we're going to bring you today. We've got one here about a pumpkin. It's the pumpkin's tale from the storyteller Bob Reiser. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. He was big. He was beautiful. He was round. He was orange. He was a pumpkin. 
the biggest, most beautiful pumpkin in the patch, the pride of his entire family. He can do anything, exclaimed his mother. That boy's got seeds, boasted his father. He'll do great things. But sometimes, as happens even in the best of families, the pumpkin had his own plans. He wanted to travel. There was a world out there just over the hill, just waiting for him. But how do you leave a family like his? If you think your family ties a strong try being a pumpkin, vines are resilient and very, very tight. Day after day he would stretch at his vine, trying to see what was over the hill. His family was aghast. No pumpkin has ever left this patch before, shouted his father, and I'll be damned if my son is the first. But you can't stop a pumpkin with a dream. And so he stretched and he stretched, day after day, inch by inch, centimeter by centimeter. And finally, one glorious sun-drenched morning, he stretched just enough to peek over the hill, and he saw the world. It was enormous. Hills and valleys rolling on and on. And then he saw her. His great pumpkin heart almost stopped. She was beautiful. So different than him. Where he was round, she was slim. Where he was huge, she was dainty. Where he was bald, she had the loveliest tuft of green on top. She was the most beautiful, elegant carrot he had ever seen. He was in love. Each morning after that he would stretch to the limit of his vine, peer over the hill, and try to arrange his stem to show off his great pumpkiny figure. Of course she saw him. <laughs> How could she miss that great, beautiful, burly pumpkin who gazed at her so tenderly? Oh, she yearned to reach out. But carrots are even more rooted than pumpkins. So each morning when she saw him peering at her, she would curve her elegant, slim body and toss her green curls to catch his eye. Oh, he saw her all right. His great pumpkin heart beat thump, thump, thump. And he stretched his vine as far as it would go. Every inch, every centimeter brought him closer to paradise. He stretched and he stretched. And at last, he did something no pumpkin had ever done before. He snapped the vine. He was free. He rolled down the hill towards her. Thump, a thump, a thump. Faster and faster, ba thump, ba thump. Down the hill he rolled, closer and closer. 
She saw him rolling down the hill, and her elegant carrot heart started to beat pitty-patty-pitty-patty-pitty-patty. Down he rolled, closer and closer. Ba-thumpa, 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 ba-thumpa. Pitty-patty-pitty-patty, ba-thumpa, pitty-patty, ba-thumpa, 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 ba And he stopped halfway down the hill. No, he cried. No, wept the beautiful carrot. This was too cruel. All night he lay alone on the slope, halfway between his pumpkin family and his beloved carrot. The cold autumn wind blew. He had never been alone before, and his great pumpkin heart ached. The next morning, as he gazed up to see his beloved, the pumpkin found himself staring into the face of a human being, the farmer's wife. What a fine big fellow, she cried. What is he doing lying here so far from the patch? Oh, he's perfect for Halloween. <laughs> and so the pumpkin found himself lifted off the ground and carried into the great house. Now he would never see his beloved again. He lay in the kitchen while the farmer's wife approached, carrying an enormous knife. She stopped and looked at him closely. If I didn't know better, I'd say this pumpkin looks downright depressed. Let's see if we can cheer him up. And so she carved two big triangle eyes and a wide, toothy smile. And then she pulled out his seeds, stuck a candle in his hollow inside, and set him on the window for the world to see. Day after day. He stared out at the garden at his beloved carrot with an aching heart and a great jack-o'-lantern smile on his face. Time passed. Halloween came. Halloween went. And you know what happens to a pumpkin when he's been on the windowsill too long? His eyes began to close and his smile began to droop. And his whole face began to sag. Well, said the farmer's wife, before this pumpkin falls apart, let's just save him and make him into soup. And so for the last time, she lay him on the cutting board and she began to peel him. He didn't care. There was no sense living without his love. He only hoped that he could make good soup for the farmer's family. And then, as the good woman lifted her kitchen knife to finish him off, the pumpkin looked around for one last farewell. <gasps> he couldn't believe it. There, on the board next to him, lay his beloved carrot. Sliced and julienned and looking more beautiful than ever. As the farmer's wife cubed him and threw him and his love into the pot, he nearly shouted with happiness. 
they leaped and danced and rolled together in the wonderful boiling water. They were together at last, together at last. That night, the farmer's family sat together, soaking up the last bit of soup with Mama's homemade bread. Lord, Mother, exclaimed the farmer, that was the finest pumpkin and carrot soup I have ever tasted. <laughs> What's your secret ingredient? Well, I, I, I'm sure I don't know, <laughs> she blushed. And it's true. She didn't know the secret ingredient. But you do. <laughs> the Pumpkin's Tale, a story told for you by Bob Reiser. We're going to wrap up with a sweet song called Part of Me. It's a song written by Gary Voorhees about how the people who came before us and the things that they did somehow become part of us, too. Part of me. We'll wrap up with this on The Appleseed. His name was Stephen, son of court, and he farmed the fields of the Netherlands. With his wife and seven children, he tilled the fertile vale. But his eyes were set on distant shores of a rich new land he'd heard of, where men were free to build their lives unfettered, unafraid. So he took his family and sailed the bitter sea. Left the land he loved so well, holding to his dream. He is part of me, and I gladly bear the name. Through his eyes I see, and his blood runs through my veins. And I'd like to think his countenance runs in the family. I am part of is part of me Generations passed away on the pastures of Long Island and the treasures of the soil Elisha came to know like seven sons before him he learned to till the land but his eyes were set on distant hills he felt the need to go, so he took his lovely bride and crossed the prairie wide, never looking back again, seeking their new life. He is part of me, and I gladly bear the name. Through his eyes I see, and his blood runs through my veins, and I'd like to his countenance runs in the family I am part of him and he is part of Gentle hills of Christenberg, Lloyd ran with childhood dreams, discovering life along the way, its treasures to unfold. 
His eyes were set on distant shores and the life the soldier leads. But at sixteen, life would change one day when the sickness took a hold. His legs were wracked with pain and he never ran again. But through it all, he taught us kids that strength comes from within. He is part of me and I proudly bear the name. Through his eyes, I see. His blood runs through my veins And I'd like to think his countenance Runs in the family I am part of him And he is part of me Think the good things in my father living I am part of him and he is part of me. Gary Voorhees with Part of Me, a song to remind us that the stories of the people who've gone before us are part of our story, too. Pleasure to be with you today. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Can't wait to be with you again on The Apple Scene. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.